And, you know, the Christian has this glorious opportunity to have their identity somewhere else other than their performance. Their identity is in Christ, you know, whether I make a hundred or whether I make naught, I'm loved by God, I'm a child of God. Welcome back to the Christians in Sport podcast, the podcast looking at all things sport and the Christian faith. Uh, at the top of the show, let me say a real thank you to all of you who are listening, who are sharing the podcast. Uh, maybe do the thing each week, but who you may be able to pass it on to. It could be a great conversation starter. Uh, and do hit subscribe, do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help more people find out about it. Now, we've got a really special interview today, super special, because the interviewers are a pair of cricket fanatics, Michael and Rob. Rob used to be an intern at Christians in Sport, and the two of them run the podcast Hit for Six. Uh, if you like cricket, it's well worth a listen to some super guests. Just search for Hit for Six. And a few weeks ago, they had a guest, our first director, the Reverend Andrew Winfield Digby, uh, to chat about his cricketing career, the foundation of Christians in Sports, and how he became a chaplain for the England cricket team in the 90s. It's a great listen. So let's join Michael and Rob now as Rob begins asking Andrew about how he first got into cricket. Good evening, Andrew. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and for being with us. How are you? Good, thank you. So far, uh, everybody has stayed healthy and um, we're surviving all right. But uh, having reached the venerable age of 70, which incidentally makes me available for the England over 70s, in case any of them are watching, um, uh, I am vulnerable, but we haven't got it, so we're okay. Good, good. Have you, have you played much senior cricket? I played a lot. When I got to 50, I started playing for the Oxfordshire over 50s, and uh, that was great. And uh, we won the whole thing at Lords 2008, beat Lancashire off the last ball of the match, which was fantastic. And then over 60s, when I got to a 60, so now 70, but I'm hoping still to be selected for the over 60s. Right. Do you think there's, other than like physical differences, is there a big difference, one big difference you'd want to talk about between playing? Um, sort of over 60s, over 70s cricket and then younger? Like I haven't had an over 70s game yet, but I'm sort of slightly think that if you can stand up, you've got a chance. But uh, um, big difference between over 60s and over 50s is the fielding. The, the fielding at over 50s is still not bad. Over 60s, it gets pretty ropey. But the batting and bowling remains pretty good. One of the things that I notice particularly, though, as you get older, is that slow bowling becomes more deadly because people don't use their feet anything like as well. So the, 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 the very slower bowler who can pitch it in the right place becomes quite a, a more deadly weapon. A bit like 2020, really. Uh, but taking it right back for you, for you with your crickets, right back to, well, 60 years ago plus, and when you were a child, when did you really get into crickets? I can tell you that extremely easy. I was, I'm, had two older brothers, so we played in the garden all the time. Uh, endlessly and of course they were older and bigger than me so it was I had to keep up with them so I was the most competitive uh, we were all about the same standard I would say but I played my first seniors game for Sherbourne Town Cricket Club in Dorset on the day that England won the World Cup in 1966 and they were so desperate for players they had to pick me age 15 so that was my first senior senior game and uh, uh I'd played quite a bit for the second 11 and, until then, uh, but that was when I really got going. But I didn't really, I wasn't at all outstanding at school. And um, my cricket didn't really take off, to be honest, until I got up to Oxford in 1970. And, and, and mainly because I was a batter at school, just bowled occasionally. 
But when I got to Oxford, I discovered that everybody wanted to bat and hardly anybody wanted to bowl. So I thought, work hard at my bowling. And I, just, I really trained hard to make myself into a reasonable bowler. And when you were at Oxford playing, did you start at that point to have ambitions about thinking I can make a, a bit of a career out of this? I can start taking this a bit seriously? Or was it always, you know, something you enjoyed doing? At every stage that I played, I couldn't believe I was playing at that standard. So, no, the answer is, because I, I really wasn't, I'm, I mean, ask any of my contemporaries, I'm afraid they'll tell you I wasn't very good. <laughs> but And so I felt that I was making the best of my ability at every stage. But I... Only, only when I was 25, and I was just starting to start at Theological College, Gloucestershire sort of offered me a contract of sorts. They said, oh, come and play a few games, you know, that sort of, that sort of offer. But by then I had set out on another track. So, but I knew I wasn't good enough to play professionally. I was a decent minor county player. You mentioned there, Andrew, being ordained. You are the Reverend Andrew Wingfield Digby. You are therefore a Christian. Yeah, that's been pretty central to your life and your work, ordained and worked in Christian ministry for many years. How did you become a Christian in the first place? Funny enough, it links in with sport because I was at school at Sherbourne and another much more distinguished old Sherbournian was David Shepherd, who became the Bishop of Liverpool. And he came to preach during my last um, term at school. And I was very impressed by what he said. And because he had been an England cricketer who had become a clergyman, I thought that was an extraordinary thing to do. And he invited me to come and work at a place called the Mayflower Family Centre in Canning Town in the east end of London, but in my gap year. And I went and did that and lived in a Christian community there. And it was there that I was really challenged to commit myself as a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home, but I had never really made any sort of solid commitment. So it was when I was 19 and uh, just before coming up to university. So I was a very young Christian when I came up to university, but I was very struck by the quality of the people by David himself. Um, uh, I mean, just some of your um, people listening to this will remember that David Shepherd was very involved in the whole uh, Stop the Tour, the whole Dolivera business, the whole Stop the Tour thing, which was all going on at that time, 1969. And he was often out demonstrating and trying to uh, get awareness of apartheid and trying to um, uh, encourage a sporting boycott of South Africa which was very controversial. But in the evenings, he'd come back to the Mayflower Family Centre and I'd have all the questions, you know, that all of us have, you know, you know, why is there suffering in the world? What about other religions? All these things. And David would sit down and answer these questions with me very patiently and encourage me to read the Bible uh, as a sort of adult. And I was confronted, I think, with my need for forgiveness and the truth of Jesus and um, made a commitment in June of 1969. And um, Christians in Sport was an organisation you ran for many years that you involved in establishing. Course, at that stage, when I became a Christian, there, there was no Christians in Sport. Sports ministry was no, no, nobody had ever heard of it. There were just a few people like David Shepherd and C.T. Studd going way back and one or two other famous sports people, but very few. And there was really no connection between uh, the world of Christianity and sport. In fact, I remember when I went on my first Christian camp in sort of house party, because I was quite good at cricket, they wanted me to bat left-handed. They wanted me to bat right-handed to give the others a chance. But I thought this is absolutely crazy, you know. And, uh, uh, and so one of the one of the first things that I did when we started Christians in Sport was to encourage youth camps where people's sport was recognised as a gift from God and help them to be excellent at it, not hide it away. But for five years of my Christian life, I I didn't really understand that. 
And I, I reached a point only as I headed towards ordination that I kind of said to God, you know, I'll only play cricket if you want me to sort of thing. You know, I only want to do this if it's, if it's, if it's your will for my life. And I came to see that, you know, at theological college, people were very good at Greek or playing the organ or, you know, all sorts of things. I could bowl an outswinger that nipped back occasionally. That's what I could do. That was my gift, you know, and uh, I did good that. None of the others could do that. I, I was really good at that. And uh, I, I had never really seen sports talent as being a gift from God that, that God could use. So I felt at that point that sport was my mission field. That right from, from about five years after I became a Christian. Sure. I felt that the reason God had enabled me to play cricket and to play at a much higher standard than my ability really should. I mean, I really was out of my depth quite a lot of the time. Playing with Imran Khan, ridiculous. And um, I felt that God had opened that door for a reason. And that led to Christians in sport. Can you tell us a little bit about how you went about setting that up? Christian? Well, there were a number of us um, who, were, who, who loved sport and who loved Jesus. Uh, and we began, to, we, we, well, the, the person who brought us together was a, an American who was over here with the tennis tour every Wimbledon he came over. He was very much Stan Smith's sort of mentor and, and so on. And Stan Smith won Wimbledon in 72. And for the next few years, uh, this guy, Eddie, came over. And while he was here, he tried to find Christian people who were playing sport at a reasonable level. And he found about eight or ten of us and uh, invested time in us, particularly me, encouraged me to see my sport in a Christian context. And, uh, and the others were the same. And we began to meet together and we it gradually grew. I mean, I think there was a sense in which God's spirit was on it. You know, there was a, a sense that the time was right and that God was building something. Sport was becoming more and more important, if you like, more and more, you know, the whole kind of, I mean, sport was very important before in the seventies, but you know, since the 70s, with the massive growth of professional sport and the coverage of sport, sport has become much more into the conscious of, of people. And, and of course, people are playing sport more than they've ever played before. So suddenly there was this great unreached people group, which only sports people could reach. You're not going to you're not going to reach the only people who reach my cricket team are the people who play in the cricket team. Realistically, I mean, that's those are my friends. That's that's where you are. That's where you live. So sport gives you a wonderful opportunity to live out your faith and, and hopefully share your faith appropriately with your teammates. And that's what we all began to do. And some one or two quite prominent people profess faith. Justin Fashionu, for instance, Bernhard Langer, Chris Akabusi, Baiga Tugamala. I mean, a few people in the high profile world kind of gave us a bit of credibility, if you like. But most of it was happening at grassroots level. And the youth camps were really important, called Sports Plus. Yeah. For, for yourself, then, your sports team for a long time was Dorset, Minor Counties Crickets. Yeah, I grew up in Dorset. So I, I never, even though from 1970, well, from 1969, we lived in, uh, in, in Oxford. And then I was in London for a while. But I always sort of went back to play for Dorset, really. Dorset was my team. But um, and it was quite difficult. In the 70s, I used to play two or three games a year, that sort of thing. Uh, and then when I got ordained in 1977, obviously it was difficult. Most of the two-day games were Sunday, Monday. So between 77 and 1984, when I was working in two parishes in North London, I couldn't play many of the games because they were Sunday, Sunday Monday. 
But then when I started Christians in Sport in 1984, I didn't have regular Sunday engagements. So I then played um, for eight years every game and was captain eventually. And all sorts of things happened then, which you'll probably ask me about. <laughs> well, yeah, I wanted to ask this. I, I, just, I basically gave a little read of your, your Wikipedia. Um, before game, just to get, a, a, I, I knew, you know, bits and bobs about you as, you know, I've, I've been involved with Christians in sport myself and all the rest yeah. of it. Um, and I came across this story in 1988 versus Cheshire, where you instructed a bowler to bowl 14 consecutive wides to basically make it a close game. By the sounds of it, it was petering out to a boring draw. Um, you got Cheshire back into the game, so they'd go for it and you could then take wickets and win the game, Correct. which duly happens. Tell us a little bit more, more about that. Okay. Black for it by the sounds of things. Why do you think that was? Do you th we were, I mean, we're talking last week to Steve Eskenazi, who's now the Middlesex captain. Yeah. Uh, and he was speaking about when they played Yorkshire, when it was all coming to about four years ago, it was Yorkshire, Somerset and Middlesex going for the title. And um, basically Yorkshire chucked on declaration bowlers. He smashed your 40 balls yeah. to make it a close yeah. game robbing Somerset of what could have been the title yeah. because they kind of yeah. fabricated or uh, manipulated the game to make it yeah. nice and exciting. Thought, thoughts on that as a general practice in cricket, but then also particularly uh, this instance. Okay. It, uh, in, in 1988, the minor counties divided the East Division and West Division. And the whole thing was to get into, the, I think the top three got a Nat West game against a major county, which was a, prestigious thing to get and uh, and uh, a bit of a money spinner obviously as well for the club but so the crucial thing was to qualify for a Nat West game in your division. Cheshire were miles ahead and have effectively won the division so um, in a sense in a, yeah in a sense I didn't mind whether we won or lost if we lost them wasn't the end of the world because they were going to win so I was determined Basically, as the captain of a two-day game, I was determined to avoid draws if I possibly could in a two-day game, which often required manipulation. Um, and in this particular game, I mean, it, it, I did get into trouble with one or two other counties who did feel that I had um, pulled a fast one. And I'm not sure that I'd do it again. But in the context of that particular game, we had set them 200 or so 220, something like that, I think. And they were eight, they were, they were 30 for six. They were, we were bowling them out. And, uh, and then number seven and eight got stuck in and really started blocking and blocking and blocking it. And I just got so frustrated that, you know, I thought we had the best side in the division at our mercy and we just could not get these old boys out. And so I said to them, look, if we give you five and over, will you go for it? Will you, will you go for it? If we get it down to five and over, we only had 11 overs left at this point. So one of them said, well, I have to go and ask the captain, Neil O'Brien. And he couldn't, he, so he went off pretending he needed a drink. It all became slightly farcical. So he went off and Neil O'Brien locked himself in the loo because he didn't want to have anything to do with it. So the chap came back and said, it's up to me to decide. And, we, and the other bats, he said, well, yeah, we'll go for it. You can get us down. So I bowled, got this chap to bowl 14 sets of four, four wides. So that's uh, 56 runs. Then he had to bowl his over, of course. So he went for four in his over. Uh, and then that leaves us 10 overs, so 11 overs to get 55. They had exactly 55 11 overs. So I thought I'll bring myself back on, keep one end quiet and see if we can bowl them out the other end. Well, I went for 17 in my over. So now it's 38 in 10. 
and I'm thinking, what have I done here? I mean, it had become a fuss. The scorers lost count in the middle of all the wides and came running onto the pitch saying what's going on. They'd lost count. The wicketkeeper went and stood by the sight screen and was rolling the ball back from behind the boundary. So the whole thing did slightly descend into chaos, which I regret. If I did it again, I'd be much more subtle. And um, uh, anyway, I took myself off, 38 needed. And the fast bowler back on, Neil Taylor went on to play for Hampshire, bowled him out one by 18. Wow. And we got into the changing room and you could just, you could imagine, we saw everybody sat in the changing room in complete silence. And then everybody started laughing at the same moment. <laughs> How did the bowler... Except the Cheshire people. <laughs> uh, yeah, did the bowler take much convincing? This is a really good plan. And um, you're the person... Talk about the bowler over. Yeah, you're <laughs> the bowler. He was our opening batsman, but he was young and fit. And I reckon he could run in and get it, do it 14 times. <laughs> and he did. No, he, he ended in wholeheartedly. Nobody in the Dorset side really... Um, they did, uh, one or two were puzzled what was going on. But nobody, nobody objected, and um, there was a there was a consequence. I mean, the next day, um, it was all over the radio. It so happened that the Times, minor county correspondent of the Times, was covering the game, so it was all over the media next day. Radio Four ringing me, you know, on the Today program and stuff, and Tim Lamb saying he didn't think it was he was running the Test and County Cricket Board. He said that you know he didn't think that it was in, entirely in accord with the spirit of the game. But who was he to disagree with the vicar? <laughs> like that. It, all, it all got a bit difficult and I mean Phil Garner who's a, who later became a great friend was with me in the over 50s team when we won it for Oxfordshire years later we played Oxfordshire in the next game and Phil refused to have a drink with me he said I was a disgrace to the game so it, 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 I, 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 I wouldn't do it again I wouldn't do it again to be honest I think um, I think it was sharp practice and the and the the rules committee of the minor counties then changed the rules that if you bowled wides or no balls deliberately you'd be you'd be docked points so it was so yeah yeah I, probably, I always think you've you've always achieved something if they end up changing the rules um yeah. uh, whether it's you've a good thing or or whatever when when the sport has to move the goalposts and change some of the rules in place because of something you've come up with um, I always think that's uh, that's a good effort. I'm obviously body. I wasn't, I wasn't actually. I wasn't the first person to do it. Chap who, who, I mean, I wasn't. There is no such thing as an original thought. I'm told, and Frank Collier had done the same thing for Hertfordshire a few years before. I think not quite so blatantly and not quite so many, but he had bold wides deliberately. Because when he when he talked about, um, I would have tried to be more subtle next time. You couldn't have been much less subtle than getting a plate to bowl. <laughs> What, however many consecutive wides? You're absolutely right, Rob. No, um, it, 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 there was a complete absence of subtlety. <laughs> you kind of hope if they do change a rule, they're going to name it after you. You do hope at least, you know, you get you become immortal in that in that sense. It get, went down in a book of the strangest cricket matches or something like that, isn't it? I think it's, it appears. But uh... The thing is, though, it isn't... I mean, it's a little bit frowned upon, for the example Rob gave that Middlesex um, and Yorkshire did. But... It's not completely outlawed in the modern game, this sort of declaration bowling. And yeah. and then it's it's essentially it's just the opposite, you know. It's taking the opportunity you have in when in the field to make the game competitive the other way. So to me, maybe you could do it more subtly. The normal the normal thing in that situation is to bowl, you know, lob it up and just let them smash fours and sixes for a bit. The trouble was that I, I really thought that we could bowl bowl them out. We only need four more wickets, so I thought we could bowl them out. And uh, only when it got down to 11 overs, I think, God, we're going to miss this out. And I thought if I bowl three overs of lobs, 
to give them 50 runs, 60 runs. I'm only going to have eight overs left. It's not going to be enough to bowl them out. You know, I'm, it's, it's, it's making it, I'm not giving myself a chance. So I thought, how in the world do I get myself, give them 60 runs, but still keep 11 overs? And, yeah. and uh, that was when I, it was a pretty spontaneous. It wasn't thought out. It, it took me about two, suddenly came into my head. I thought, let's do it, you know. So despite bringing minor counties cricket into disrepute, and Ted, Ted Dexter gives you a call in 1991 and says, I'd love you to be the chaplain of the England cricket team. Yes. How did that kind of come about? What was the context behind him calling you? And had that role existed before or has no. it since? No, it hadn't. It hadn't existed before and, um, and doesn't exist now. Um, Ted Dexter had been in the England team with David Shepherd. Uh, in fifties and sixties, and in the Sussex team with David Shepherd, and he had a very positive experience of Christian influence in the team. He felt David was a very positive influence on the other players, who who um, sometimes could perform less well because of the lifestyle, perhaps that they chose to leave or whatever. You know, on a wild, the wild side of things, and I think that what. Ted thought was that somebody who he called a spiritual advisor, that's what he called it, could have the same sort of um, calming pastoral influence in the team that David had had. Of course, it was, it was very different because I, I was very much on the fringe of the whole thing. I mean, I, often I felt a bit of a lemon, to be honest. I was, they were very, they were very, very nice to me. They were very kind and uh, welcoming, but I mean, you know, I think, I mean, Mike Atherton was, became captain in due course and he's remained and stayed a good friend. And um, I think he'd say that, that, you know, the important thing was that I didn't get in the way. I think he'd say, you know, that if you asked him, you know, what contribution did Andrew make? He would say, well, at least he didn't get in the way. <laughs> and so I was, I was very much on the edge of things, but there were moments when players would come and, you know, they were very intimate and confidential conversations and praying with with players and listening to their struggles which obviously you know I don't feel I can talk about who, who those people were obviously and uh, you know one or two of them have written about it I mean Robin Smith has written quite a bit about it so and talked quite a bit about it so uh, you know I can mention his name but because um, only because he's he's talked about it but there were other there were other situations as well but it I mean, when the wheels came off in that tour of Australia when Andy Flower and Peterson and all that was there and, and Swan was getting injured and coming home and Trot came home early, something went disastrously wrong in the changing room during that tour. And there were moments in the 90s when similar kind of things happened. I mean, you're talking about some quite fragile people in the England team at that stage, you know, Tuffers, Dominic Cork, Goffey, Rambrakesh, these were they, they were wonderful chaps. I mean, Hick, Hick, of course. You know, was he going to make it or wasn't he going to make it? There were moments, I think, when having someone there who who they could go and have a drink with in a different part of the bar and have a quiet talk with made all the difference. And I do actually think, I don't know, but it's my opinion that had they had someone like that in that Australian tour, when Trot was having a real struggle, Peterson was being very difficult. Peterson's the sort of person I would have got on really well with and he would have talked to me, you know, like Robin did. And um, I just feel it would have made a difference. I just feel it would have made a difference. Um, 
And of course, you know, football clubs have chaplains, rugby clubs have got chaplains, so chaplains all over the place now. As most sports, cricket is cricket, funnily enough, is the, is the least open to it. And in a way, cricket's the most difficult because the players are away so much. It's really hard to, to get to know the players. But uh, I do think that it was a I, I, it was a really worthwhile thing to do. Of course, it was an amazing privilege for me. I mean, it was just fantastic for 10 years. I was welcomed into the England camp. I mean, amazing. Couldn't believe it. I was even allowed to bowl in the nets occasionally, only against the bowlers. Yeah, did you get any good scalps? I remember, I remember bowling at Chris Silverwood in Bulawayo and uh, he wasn't playing in the game and uh, there was absolutely no one to give him a net. So I was... I was dispatched to bowl at him in the net. And I took with me a chap who was traveling with me, Scottish guy, who was actually the chairman of Christians' Sport at the time, Douglas Smith. And I remember the first time he ran into bowl at Chris Silverwood in the net in Bulaway. And the ball was one of the way that's straight over the top of the net. You're not even into the net. Over <laughs> Chris Silverwood thinking, what is going on here? <laughs> I was, um, was going to say, Andrew, I was kind of thinking about what the equivalent is now or what you know what is in that present in the dressing room now is that sort of pastoral presence and I suppose maybe the team psychologist was the thing I was thinking of as the alternative but what would you say from your perspective having done it for 10 years would be the differences between what you were offering to the team and what maybe someone like a psychologist or psychologist apart from the fact that obviously I was a Christian and therefore there was a kind of prayerful spiritual aspect to it but in terms of counselling of the players the difference is that the sports psychologist uh, and everybody else are employed by the ECB uh, and are part of the management structure so the player could come to me and say look my wife's having an affair with somebody else or I'm having an affair with somebody else or my children are ill or I've got shocking form I can't I go to the net I don't think I can make a run they know it wasn't going any further than me there was no way I was going to be at a selection meeting there was no way I was going to divulge any of that sort of thing to anybody now the sports psychologist has a really important role to play I'm not against it at all I'm, I'm in favor of it I think it's really helpful but they they do report back to the to the management. They do, and I mean, if you're, I don't know, you think of some of the things that have happened recently: Triscothic, Trot, uh, Hoggard, even Freddie Flintoff now with his has uh, talked openly about his eating disorders. It's very difficult for players to show their weakness to someone who's then going to report to the manager. It's very difficult to do that, and um, I think that a, a pastor, a chaplain is the person who should be there to enable them to do that. And of course, then pray with them about that situation. And none of them ever stopped me from praying with them. They all, they love being prayed for. They love being prayed for. And it was lovely to lead some of them to Christ in that situation. I remember reading Matthew Hoggard's book and just before he got dropped by England towards the end of his England career, I think he was having a tough time on an international tour in Margaret, India. Um, and he said to, I think it wasn't a member of backroom staff, it wasn't a psychologist, I think it was Vaughan. He said, I think I'm doing a Trez, I think I'm doing a Trez go, you know, referring to Scoffic. And then very yeah. shortly afterwards, Fletcher, I think, said something, or there was some kind of intuition that uh, whoever the coach was, and Hoggard instantly thought, have you told them? And mm. pretty soon after, but I think that what you said kind of reminded me of that, that lack of a safe space to talk about an issue i hadn't really thought about the difference in terms of being employed by the ecb not employed by the ecb so it's really interesting to hear. Robin, Robin, in his book robin smith writes about an incident that happened in in india with, with when phil tufnell 
lost his rag completely on the pitch uh, in in a place called Bishop of Hattenham when they were playing between between the Calcutta Test and the Madras Test on that tour, the Madras Test, which was the famous prawn poisoning match. But anyway, the um, the, the point is that in the evening after the game, Tufnell was fine and he was sharing a room with Robin and he was in a really bad way. It was a really, really bad way and very, very upset and um, traumatised, really. I mean, it, 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 he, he was fragile at that stage. I, I knew Phil from when I was a vicar in North London and he had lived in the parish, so I'd known him since he was 15. And I knew that he was in, he was in real stress and strain and um, Robin's written about it eloquently in his book. And... Um, the management eventually had a crisis meeting, what they're gonna do with him because he was so out of control. And they were about to send him home. And they called me in, Bob Bennett, Keith Fletcher, Graham Gooch. I remember going into the room and uh, I said, what, what, what's happening? And they said, well, we're just gonna send the blank blank home. I said, you just cannot do that. You cannot do that. That's the end of his career. If you do that, it's just a terrible thing to do. So I think that I did kind of, apart from spending a bit of time with Phil, I think I was able there to say to the management, look, I can't tell you what's going on, but that is, you know, that to send someone home at this moment for this thing is absolutely the wrong thing. And uh, of course, also to send your left arm spinner home from an India tour is not the wisest thing to do in the best of times anyway. You know, so uh, um, anyway, there there were moments like that when, I was privy to information, which I couldn't disclose, but I could, I could speak up for the players. I had to be very careful. And I, I can see why you were talking about the Australia tour, where it seemed like a player was heading home every other week during that tour. And it was such a, a mess. Well, I just, I just and things have gotten into such a muddle on that tour. Just, you know, it seems extraordinary to me now. You know, surely somebody could have sat somebody down and talked some sense into it. I mean, Andy Flowers is a really good man, and uh, he must have been at his wits' end. I can't because you know, yeah, I, I don't know. Something went wrong, and I just feel an objective listening ear might have helped. That role of being an objective listening ear is kind of a, a role of a chaplain, and you were a chaplain at a, a couple of Olympics, Seoul in '88. London 2012, 24 years apart. And um, what were they like? And, and, and Sydney. Oh, were you Sydney as well? I'm just telling one story about Sydney. You, you, you may remember that Sydney won the bid and Manchester were the other possibility for the 2020, for two, 2000 Olympics. So I'm sitting there by the Harbour Bridge drinking a beautiful glass of Chardonnay, looking at the bridge with a huge screen of the Olympics being played one evening. And someone comes up and taps me on the shoulder, some friend from back home. And just says, just think, Andrew, he said, we could have been in Manchester. <laughs> it was very good news being in Sydney. <laughs> now, being a chap in the Olympics is an amazing experience and a, a really great privilege to be living in the heart of the village. We don't live in the village, but you're in the village every day. There are a lot of Christian people taking part in the Olympics of all sorts of backgrounds and so on. And they come to the religious center at various times. So you're having Bible studies, prayer meetings. Um, you're out around the village meeting up with people. Uh, some of the time, there's, you, you know, you're at a loose end. Uh, but at any moment, there's a kind of champagne moment pastorally. I just think it's a, a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. The great thing is that the Olympic Games requires there to be freedom of worship. So they have to have a religious center 
And the crucial thing is to man that with chaplains, men and women, not only men and women who love Jesus, which is very important indeed, but also people who love sport, who really love the sport and aren't fans about it, but love sports people. Not, not, I make that distinction. That's quite important. They're not going around looking for autographs and things like that. But they are sports people. They understand what competition is about. A lot of, a lot of vicars are fans and, uh, and it's not the answer at all. Did, did you notice a, a, maybe a difference in some of the issues or concerns and pressures that athletes are experiencing from 1988 to 2000 to 2012? Or was much of it the same in terms of pressure of competition? And... I don't think I noticed any difference, really. I mean, I think that the, the big issues are identity. It's so, so many sports people wrap up their identity in their performance. It, they're so wrapped up with, I, I am somebody if I run fast. If I jump high, if I score tries, if I make runs, and if I don't make runs, who am I? And, you know, the Christian has this glorious opportunity to have their identity somewhere else other than their performance. Their identity is in Christ, you know, whether I make a hundred or whether I make naught, I'm loved by God, I'm a child of God. And this gives a Christian a huge advantage in, in sport, in my opinion, a massive advantage once they understand that. If, if, if your whole identity is totally wrapped up in your sport and you commit everything to it and fail, then it's a crisis. So a lot of professional sports people just hold back a little bit, just hold back a little bit because, you know, if you give everything and fail, who am I? A Christian can give everything and still be loved by God. It's a massive advantage, massive advantage. I wish people, could, I wish, I, I, love, I love explaining it to sports people that um, you can play with utter abandonment if you're a Christian. Very difficult if you're not a Christian, because if you fail, who are you? Um, well, on that profound note, which um, I, have, <laughs> I think in many ways is very uh, applicable to even to working life. I mean, I think of my, my work Absolutely. is yeah. a high performance. It's not just sport. Sport, sport is because sport is so ridiculous. You know, your golfers trying to just trying to get a small ball into a hole. I mean, so much of sport. I mean, we love it. We're passionate about it. We spend hours training for it and working at it. But it's, it's essentially ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, but your whole identity is wrapped up in it. And um, yeah. if you suddenly find you can't do it, that, and so that's why most sports people's crisis comes at retirement. That's when most, that, that is when the chaplain is most needed, is when people come to the end of their career. That's when, that's when many of them face it. When it's that, I was Rob Starman, the Premier League striker. Now I am Rob Starman, ex-footballer. I remember Alex Ribeiro, who, who was a Formula One racing driver, from Brazil, and uh, he he started the sports ministry in Brazil. And he said to me, when I, when I was driving a Formula One racing car in Brazil, I was a superstar. Everybody knew me, Mr. Superstar. As soon as I stopped driving, I'm Mr. Ordinary, I'm just Mr. Ordinary. And uh, sports people find that very hard. Thanks for sure. Um, well, look, we won't. We've seen family members, grandchildren, and um, walking <laughs> behind you. We won't keep you any longer. Uh, it's been lovely to meet you. Lovely to Lovely to have you. Well, great. That was a great listen. Thanks for listening. And thanks again uh, to Michael and Robert Hit for Six. Do find them on social media. Do find them on any podcast app. Uh, there's going to be no podcast next week. We're having a week off, but we're back the week after. We've got some great content lined up in the build up to the Olympics. Uh, it'd be fascinating and well worth listening to. So do hit subscribe. Do continue to pass it on to friends, to family, to whoever might want to listen. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. See you again soon. Bye bye.